Welcome to Relentless Truth with John Warren, the podcast that extracts truth from a wide range of topics, revealing who God is, who we are, and how we relate to each other. Now, here's John with this week's powerful and practical insights. Welcome to Relentless Truth. I'm John Warren. It's good to be with you again. We are uh, just still kicking off our series in Paul's epistle to the church at Philippi. We will interrupt this series every now and then for economic and news updates, just like we did a couple of weeks ago before we started this series. And in a couple of weeks, I'm going to have God willing, a very special guest who runs a school in Illinois with me uh, on this podcast, and you you are just going to be amazed. I, I you know I know we throw that word around a lot, but uh, you will be amazed at her story and the story of her school. It is truly unlike any other. It's one of those stories that has so many elements of. God working in the lives of people that it it is undeniable. And um, those, those, those stories are, are encouraging. Well, last week we started with this uh, look at this epistle, the kind of the background. Uh, We learned that uh, Paul is the author of this epistle and he's not just the author of, of Philippians, this, this letter that he wrote to the church at Philippi somewhere between 59 and 61 AD. But he is also, we learned from the book of Acts, he is the founder of uh, this church. He's apparently the, the apostolic founder of the church at Philippi. Uh, We talked about um, the, the, the town, the location of the town, the, uh, the, the proximity to mountains and gold mining and so on uh, many years ago. It lies in ruins today. It's been, uh, some things have been excavated, though, that give us a little bit of an idea of the significance of the town. We said it was called Little Rome, if you remember. And uh, we, we also talked about various sections of this letter. And, and the gist of the background, really, is... Paul very likely wrote it from Rome while he was imprisoned under house arrest in a room shackled to a Roman guard. We know that that guard changed out every six hours, so he would have a new person every six hours. And it it seems to me that when you study the stories of Paul, he must have had quite a way about him. And, And I'm sure it was the Holy Spirit living within him and he had a personality that was such that um, people were drawn to him to learn from him. And so can you imagine what these guards heard during these six-hour shifts? And you know about the the story and acts of the the jailer in Philippi that that uh, apparently trusts Christ while being being witnessing the 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 miracle of 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 paul and and friends. Uh, being in prison with all the things that happened there. So this story, though, in in uh, Paul's writing of this letter to the Philippians is really interesting to me. It, it, it kind of, when you know the background 
and this guy named Epaphroditus. It, you know, and that's just one of those names that you just kind of go, oh no, not another, not another one of those names. It sounds kind of weird. And who is that guy? And who knows? And we don't know much about him. And so who cares? Well, he's an interesting guy because he, you get to see some of his heart in, in this letter and Epaphroditus's that is, and Paul's and, and the tenderness of these men. I mean, you had to be pretty hardy to go through all the things that Paul went through. Um, and you know, about the shipwreck and all the rest and his imprisonment during his imprisonment. And he was bitten by a snake and you know, he's, he's a, he's a tough guy. And he advised the captain, you know, throw all the stuff overboard and do this and that I've heard from God on this. And you've, you, you know, these things are going to happen. And, and, and yet Paul is so tender. And so is Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus might have been, uh, historians tell us and theologians agree uh, might have been the pastor of this church at Philippi during this time, this 59 to 61 window, uh, and, and maybe well beyond that when, when Paul is writing this letter. And what what's interesting about Epaphroditus is he's going to Paul because they're all worried about Paul. They're worried, they being the church at Philippi, they're worried that he might be executed. They want They want to know how he's doing. And, and, you know, they didn't have FaceTime and texting and email and all the things we have. They, they had to communicate by word of mouth and they, they sent people places. And I, I think we, you know, we've, we've talked before here about how uh, I, I know I sound old when I say this, but I, I, I think we, we kind of miss out on some things by, by not living that way. I think when given a chance, we ought to go for the in-person meeting that sitting down together and talking and looking at each other without our phones occupying us. But anyway, uh, the, the letter uh, was written by Paul. So Epaphroditus shows up and, and he, uh, he delivers an offering that had been collected for Paul. And, and it seems from, from some of the narrative that, that he knew that this would not be sufficient or else Paul told him it wouldn't be entirely sufficient to meet Paul's financial needs. There were, there were times where people gave to Paul and, and he, he lived in abundance and he, he talked about that uh, abounding and not abounding is kind of how he, he called it. And, and he, Paul lived in a world that relied on God. He, 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 he knew that God would be faithful. And that was, that that's a beautiful part of, of his ministry and some of these, um, these verses that we're going to talk about today in this episode. Well, Epaphroditus, um, you know, and, and what don't we all want a friend like this? Uh, he shows up, he, 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 he talks with Paul. He, he tells Paul what's going on back at Philippi and Paul, and he, and how are you? And I want to be able to tell the people when I go back and so on. And Oh, by the way, I, I know this offering isn't sufficient. So Epaphroditus says, I'm going to stay here with you and I'm going to get a job. I'm going to work, and I'm going to earn some money for you. Now, that just—if you just read scripture casually and you just blow right through it—you you just sort of you kind of miss the fact that Epaphroditus is doing something that we typically don't do. He's working. He's using his labor to earn money for another person, for the ministry and life. Uh, living conditions, uh, um, life needs of the Apostle Paul. 
This must have been an amazing man who is gripped by God, who is focused on loving Paul well. And you know the story. Um, Epaphroditus gets a a sickness of some kind. And, And there must have been other people from Philippi, possibly even the church at Philippi, that also traveled, you know, here and there. And they reported back to the church, apparently, that Epaphroditus was ill. And he was apparently, based on Paul's words in the letter, seriously ill. He almost died. And I know we all know stories where even my own with my cancer story, by the way, I'm at my 20-year anniversary of being uh, free of cancer from my diagnosis and and then surgery and then chemo, uh, chemo. I am grateful to God for, for that healing. But, it, but Epaphroditus was, was, was really ill and almost died. And uh, it's just curious that he's one of the folks that Paul talks about. He wants to get word back to the Philippians because he knows their hearts. So Paul is tenderhearted and loving. Epaphroditus is tenderhearted, loving, and even willing to work and earn wages for Paul to help Paul. And, and, and they know the church is worried about both of them. And so he's going to send, now that he's well, he's going to send Epaphroditus back with this letter. And here's what the letter says. And I'm not going to read the whole thing today, but I'm, I'm going to, God willing, get through the first 11 verses. Listen to this. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Amen. So, as usual... You got to take a deep breath when you read Paul's sentences because they go on for a while. But this, this church at Philippi was anxious about Paul's welfare. I feel like I'm in a drone when I read this and I get to fly over the church at Philippi and I get to fly across over to the, the, the place in Rome where Paul is, is, is being held and, and, and you get to see probably Timothy there with him writing and Epaphroditus visiting and then getting sick and 
while working and, and to earn additional money for Paul and then and maybe some others going back to the church at Philippi. You sort of, when you know the history, it's helpful because you get a, a view of the entire uh, situation. Now, we, we don't have a ton of details. I would encourage you to uh, read the book of Acts for the, uh, the, the Acts of the Apostles so that you can uh, see uh, at least um, a high-level overview of their travel of Paul's travel in particular uh, during this time. There's some stuff going on at, at, at Philippi, though, at this church. And, you know, they're, they're called Little Rome by historians, and they're part of the Roman Empire. And uh, they, they, they were, I guess, a, a city that was valued to the Roman Empire because they're on the route that goes to, to Asia. And that, that's why we believe that historians call them Little Rome. Well, like, like any, any environment that is filled with anxiety, when you, know, you can imagine being at the church at Philippi and hearing that Paul is, is under these conditions, he's, he's arrested really for his faith, and, and, and uh, he's, he's, he's arrested and, and chained to a, a Roman prisoner, and, and really it causes the church to feel persecution, the church at Philippi, the Philippian church. And there were, there were other challenges though, brought on by these challenging circumstances. This is jolting to read. You, you will, we'll see later in, in this epistle that there was some disunity in this church. Um, there was some dissatisfaction. There was vulnerability to false teaching and there was a fair amount of anxiety they, they needed a change of perspective, and, and Paul knew in, in writing this epistle that he had to assure them that God was in control. And, and you get that this in almost every line, uh, certainly every page, every section, every paragraph of, of this beautiful letter. He's, he's giving them assurance, and, he, and he, Paul uses a, uh, I'll call it a strategy. I know he's in, inspired by the Holy Spirit as he's writing this. Uh, because it becomes part of the canon of Scripture, and I believe all of Scripture is inspired. But Paul, Paul is assuring these people. He's 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 really kind of taking an encouraging route in his writing, and he talks a lot, as we've already discussed last week, about joy and 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 thanksgiving, being being joyful. So he's really writing to get them the church at Philippi, although he loves them and he's tender toward them. And this is a tender epistle uh, to replace selfishness with selflessness, uh, establishing a a right relationship with God for not just salvation, but service and replacing worry with thanksgiving and contentment. So, so when you hear someone today saying, and, and you know, you see these, these, these little slogans and things on social media, or you, or you hear a pastor or a counselor or a teacher say, you know, one of the best ways to replace anxiety is by being thankful, developing a thankful heart. They aren't just making that up. This comes from this and other sections of scripture, but particularly this one, Paul writes about replacing worry with thanksgiving and contentment. He's very consistent with the Sermon on the Mount. When 
Jesus says, be not anxious. And he goes on to talk about the birds and the, and the flowers being, you know, the fields being decorated. And if God cares for those things, then of course he cares for you. And then he says, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father in heaven and so on give good things to those who ask him and so on. Well, Paul saw the, the return of a healthy Epaphroditus because the church was worried about him too. And, and his Paul's response to his Roman imprisonment in this letter as a, as a real source of joy for the church at Philippi. He knew that he needed to encourage them and, and that they needed to renew their joy. They needed to stop fretting and be joyful. It's really interesting. They, you, you probably, as you read the epistles written by Paul, you note his greetings. They're, they're, they're fascinating to me. And if you, if you, I have to make myself slow down. If you make yourself slow down and, and really read them carefully, they're, they're interesting. He, he kind of has a typical greeting style. They're not all identical, but, but in this one, Paul, uh, in, and in most, he, he typically identifies himself uh, an associate if someone else is with him. Uh, in this case, we think Timothy was. The, uh, he identifies the readers, the intended recipients of the letter, and, and then a, kind of a blessing and a, a prayer of thanksgiving. You, you see this real clearly in, in places like Romans and Colossians and First uh, and Second Thessalonians, just, just for example. There's a, there's a verse in Acts, Acts 13, 9, that I want to talk about just for a minute. And I don't, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this because this is, uh, this is, this is kind of a, it's one of those things that, that I, I can't be uh, dogmatic about, but uh, it, it, it's emblematic of something that, that I think we, we need to, uh, you know, I learned it from R.C. Sproul's ministry uh, directly. And I, th- I think it's just a, a healthy uh, thing to do. I, and that, that thing is, I, I started questioning some of the things I learned as a child, as a young person even, or even as a college student or, or, or later, uh, from, from well-meaning teachers and pastors that just may or may not be, be, be true. Uh, and so, so I want to look at Acts uh, 13.9 in the, in the context of Paul's introduction here, he says, but Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him. That's all it says. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked and straight paths and not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord. Uh, the the important thing here for us, and and it's frankly not that important, is that that verse seems to some people to go against a narrative that you've probably heard, where Paul was named Saul. That was his birth name. Uh, some some people believe. And then at his conversion or after his Damascus Road conversion, uh, sometimes some people think years later, but, but after that conversion, it appears 
that God changed his name or someone changed his name to Paul from Saul. And, and I, when I read Acts 13, 9, I, I really don't get that. It, it, it seems to imply that Saul and Paul were nicknames. And I, I, I don't want to steal your joy on this if you're thinking, oh, I know the meaning of the words. I looked up the word Paul and Saul, and I think God gave him a new name. That is entirely possible. I am not dogmatic about this nickname theory. But, but his given name appears to be Saul, and, and we really don't have biblical certainty of this or this, this name change. I go to Acts 13.9 just because it seems to say that he was called both of those things. I mean, that's what, that is what it says. So it's, it's possible that the name Paul was assumed after his conversion to remind him of the world of the grace and, and, uh, and, and power of God in his life. But we aren't certain of this from the biblical record. We do know that the Latin word Paulus, which appears to be the, 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 the background word for Paul's name, uh, means little or small. It has kind of a humble um, uh, feel to it. Um, and Paul did see himself as, as the very least of all the, the saints, he said in Ephesians 3.8. And then late in life, he, he viewed himself humbly as the foremost or, or chief of, of sinners in 1 Timothy 1.15. And, and some scholars speculate that the name change from Saul to Paul might have indicated a shift from proud Pharisee to, to humble Christian. But whether, whether his name was changed or not, the and whether or not it was changed by God for this purpose, we can see through Paul's greeting alone that he remained humble and even perhaps increased in humility as his life in Christ went on. Another interesting fact about this particular greeting, and I promise not to move this slowly through all of this, but this greeting in Philippians is significant in that Paul doesn't reference his official title as apostle. And, and he does sometimes, and sometimes it, it appears he needs to. I think we ought to pay attention to those things. I, I, don't, I don't think any detail is lost on, on, on Paul in his writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit here. Uh, but he doesn't mention the fact that he's an apostle, and scholars think that, that he wouldn't see an appeal to his authority to be necessary to this, the Macedonian churches of Philippi and, and Thessalonica, uh, he, they, they, he started this church at Philippi and they are his friends. He doesn't need to say I'm an apostle. Um, and, and he doesn't. And he also, uh, uses a, a warmer tone, lots of personal pronouns in this writing. It's a very personal letter written to friends. Scholars suggest that Paul just wouldn't need an appeal to authority and he can write more warmly to them. The same is true in his letter to Philemon. His greeting to the churches of Galatia, Corinth, and Rome do assert his apostleship very clearly, whereas his greeting here and to the other Macedonian churches takes on a, a much warmer, friendly tone. Well, Paul's associate, who he references here, Timothy, or Timotheus, uh, was born in Lystra. He was the son of a Greek father and Jewish mother. He was influenced by his godly mother, as you may know, Eunice, and his grandmother, Lois. He was apparently converted to Christ through the ministry of Paul 
during Paul's first missionary journey. This is Timothy we're talking about. Paul often referenced Timothy as his son, his son in the faith, including his conversion and the close relationship uh, that that developed between them kind of in, in his referencing Timothy. Well, Paul chose Timothy to become a missionary team member during his second missionary journey. We know that from Acts. And he, he, he modeled this appropriate fulfillment of our discipleship mandate, this making of disciples, Paul did, even with Timothy and, and others, as you know. So Timothy was commissioned and ordained, and he, he shared in the building of the churches in Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea. We get all that out of Acts 16. But Paul sent Timothy from Ephesus to Macedonia during his third missionary journey. We know this for a fact. He also sent him to Achaia, to, to, or Achaia, or Achaia, it's pronounced sometimes, to prepare the way for Paul's ministry there. Later in that journey, we know that he joined Paul and traveled from Ephesus to Macedonia to Achaia, back to Macedonia, and then on to Asia. Paul's dangerous trip to Jerusalem, and, and we talked about that when we studied Romans together. He, he wrote that beautiful compendium of theology because he was afraid for, for his life. He, was, he feared that he might be harmed on this dangerous trip to, to Jerusalem. And it was dangerous in several respects. The weather, the oceans, the means of travel, and then the Judaizers were out to get him. Um, but that trip might not have included Timothy, we think. The Bible doesn't really inform us on this, but it appears that Timothy rejoined Paul during his imprisonment, imprisonment in Rome during the early months because Paul dispatched Timothy to Philippi. We see this in Philippians 2, 19 through 24. So Timothy was well known to the Philippians is the point here. He'd been there at least three times and he was prepared to go again. He might have even written the letter, you know, as a scribe, as dictated by Paul to the Philippians, this book that we're studying under Paul's uh, dictation and supervision. We don't know whether or not Timothy later rejoined Paul in Rome. The historical record is just unclear on this. Paul and Timothy called themselves, and Paul calls them here, bondservants of Jesus Christ. They were literally Christ's slaves, the Greek word would indicate. That means they were bought and owned by him. This is the only greeting of Paul's that references himself and his associate this way. Later, Paul wrote that Timothy served with him in the gospel ministry. This verb is related to the Greek word for slave. Since the sons of slaves were slaves themselves in this ancient culture, it'd be a natural conclusion that Paul's spiritual son would inherit his slavehood. The title bondservant is a title of humility and nobility. Moses was a servant. The prophets of Israel were servants. In Revelation 1.1, Christ called John his servant. In Matthew 4, our worship, all worship, must be joined with service and directed toward God only. Jesus took on the form of a bondservant, even though he was the sovereign son of God. 
Paul Timothy and Epaphroditus all revealed the the attitude of servanthood in their ministry. And we're going to get to that in Philippians chapter 2, verses 22 and following. Paul urged the Philippians to develop this Christ-like attitude that he is demonstrated, that he does demonstrate, that he demonstrated his entire life post-conversion. But Paul calls his readers saints, if you notice. That's, that's a description of all genuine believers. This isn't a reference to elite people or people appointed as such after their death. The, these saints were lay members of the church at Philippi. We can, we can boldly and humbly claim that title ourselves, believers. The term saints means set-apart ones. It's, it's based on the Greek word hagiazo, hagiazo, that means to set apart or to sanctify. This word references conversion, the present cleansing ministry by the Holy Spirit through the word of God, and the total separation from the effects of sin when the believer receives the incorruptible, immortal body at the rapture of the church. Well, these opening remarks are counterintuitive to us. We would see the apostles as, as saints and the, and the church members as servants, as servants, wouldn't we? But here, Paul is the servant writing to the saints. Well, he references the overseers, you will recall. They're the presiding officers of the local church. This, this term is based on a compound Greek word, episkopos, episkopos, it means oversight. And this word is derived from a, a verb, episkeptomai, easy for me to say, that translates to look upon or to look after. It has the idea of inspecting as an overseer or the modern foreman. Uh, it has a similar root to the word episcopus, where we, we get our episcopal church. This title is applied to Jesus Christ, who is the shepherd and guardian of our souls in First Peter. Christ has the oversight of the universal church as its living head. There are three English terms used to describe the functions of this position, elder, pastor, and overseer. It was used to, uh, to describe the apostolic oversight that Judas forfeited by his unbelief and apostasy in Acts 1. So Christ assigned the appointing of elders in the first century church to the apostles, as you know. After the apostolic period, the responsibility of appointing elders rests now with the church. The deacons are those appointed by the church to assist the elders. We see that in Acts 6. This concept seems to have originated by the rapid numerical growth of the church in Jerusalem. This word, this Greek word for deacon, diakonos, is a compound word based on the word through and dust. The imagery of this word, I like this, suggests a man who is quickly performing his tasks, kicking up a trail of dust by his haste. Well, there's this word blessing that Paul sometimes uses, this, this, this blessing in verse 2. It, it's, this word grace is the, the Greek charis, as he's blessing the church at Philippi, it, it always precedes peace as its foundation. 
All believers are justified by grace through Jesus Christ. Our, our acceptable standing before God is maintained by divine grace. Grace is God's blessing bestowed by him on believing sinners set apart from any merit within us. The word grace only appears three times, this particular one, charis, in this letter, this, this letter to the Philippians. We know that God supplies daily grace to meet the needs of Christians, giving us undeserved provision. And then there's the word peace. Paul begins and ends this letter with a request for sustaining peace. The word peace also just appears three times in this epistle. If we could only see that each day of our lives and everything else, it it begins and ends with God's peace. This word from is the Greek word apo. It links the father and the son together as a common source. And we we also know that these, these gifts are mediated to the believer through the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit. So we see the whole Godhead here. This simple two-verse greeting, sometimes we, we, like we said earlier, go right by it very quickly, but it's a beautiful picture of servant leadership. It sets a humble tone, and it communicates the way Paul sees his ministry. We have the opportunity to humbly serve each other, don't we? I have that opportunity to serve the saints in classes I teach of various types and, and through this podcast. What, what a wonderful honor it is. What a privilege it is to do so. I sometimes, though, blow right by the greeting. I sometimes skip it when I write an email. I just go right into the business. In fact, I was told by a friend in Colombia, in South America, that their culture is much warmer and they tend to talk about grace and peace and pleasantries and warmer greetings. And I just jump right into business. So I'm thankful for the opportunity to, to communicate well and humbly and graciously. And I want to work at this, this notion of not just jumping right into business. That's part of our loving each other well. Well, it was natural for the Philippians to be anxious for Paul's welfare under these challenging circumstances. But Paul didn't allow circumstances to rob him of his joy in the Lord. Whatever happened to him was for the furtherance of the gospel, the furtherance of the gospel in his mind. His imprisonment in Rome gave him time to to write four epistles. If you think about it, 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 this, this provided wonderful writing time. Can you imagine what these guards heard as Paul dictated this letter to Timothy, if, if that's in fact how, how that worked? He wrote Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and uh, uh, Philemon uh, during this period. Paul also had a ministry of prayer, didn't he? They could have rested in this and in God's sovereignty. Their their own church started as a result of similar circumstances. Paul and Silas had been beaten and imprisoned for exercising a demon out of a possessed girl, if you remember, in Philippi. Again, you can see that in Acts 16. And, And they responded with prayer and praises instead of sobbing and self-loathing. They knew that God was working all things out for his glory and their good. 
In fact, we we believe, based on the narrative, that the prisoners in jail are heard their hymns and praises, and many came to Christ. Paul's reminding the Philippians that he can pray for them while imprisoned in Rome in verse 3. Paul is focused on the Philippians, if you notice, rather than himself. Each verse in this section, this next section, 3 through 11, references you. That's not how we do it, is it? You've heard of narcissistic behavior. We're all somewhat selfish, and we all kind of focus on what this particular circumstance, whatever it is, we tend to focus on what it means to me. Paul didn't do that. All the indications are that Paul was an incredibly humble apostle. He loved others. He focused on them while he is in chain, in chains, chained to a Roman guard in, in under house arrest with an uncertain future. I don't know about you, but uncertainty bothers me. And Paul had to know that death, his death was possible. His execution by the Roman government was possible. When he says, I thank, in, in, in verse three, and he's, he's referencing my God, he says, uh, this is a very personal uh, reference. God was not distant or impersonal to Paul. Paul willingly confessed the sovereign to the sovereign government of God over his life. The verb translated thank is is a Greek word, eucharisto. Eucharisteo, actually. There's an E in there, eucharisteo. It denotes continued action in present time. He gave thanks for the Philippians repeatedly. This, this compound word is really, literally, could be translated good grace. It is the goodness of divine grace that causes our response of grateful thanksgiving. Paul's gratitude was addressed to God here. And it was based on remembrance. His thanksgiving referent, uh, uh, rested on and was supported by memories. In all my remembrance of you, he said. Think about that. We talk like that sometimes with each other, maybe right that way as well. But we have fond memories of each other and haven't spent time together. Paul's modeling a lot of good writing here, a lot of good behavior, a lot of good communication skills. If we want to emulate this brilliant theologian, we should develop thankful hearts. The most thankful people are the most joyful people. If we want to develop joy, we must be thankful. Instead, we chase happiness, don't we? We think that more things will make us happy, more accomplishments, more titles, more income, or more of various other things. We rely on things that don't give us joy to make us happy, and that doesn't end well. Well, the word translated prayer here is, is a Greek word, desis, that refers to an, a, a, an entreaty or, or a supplication. Paul, Paul later, in verse 9, he uses this word for prayer that, that has the idea of uh, just a general word for prayer. That first word is, is, is the idea of a supplication. 
these prayers of need can go from person to person as well as a person to God. However, this prayer in verse four is to God only. Uh, Paul makes it clear that this, this prayer occurs during his uh, devotional period in every, he says in every prayer of mine, that word every indicates that he prayed often. He also prayed whenever he remembered the Philippian church. Paul prayed without ceasing. He prayed for all of them, he says. He was no respecter of persons. You couldn't be part of that church and think, oh, Paul's praying for everybody else but not me. The word making in this verse is has the idea of constant and uh, activity and duration. Needs never go away, do they? There, there's a... There's a long list that we could each make and, and should probably uh, when we pray so that we don't forget other people's needs. It seems that they're never ending, doesn't it? Well, neither should our supplication for these needs. Our supplications should be constant. And then, and then these prayers were made with joy. This is the first mention of this key word in Philippians which is the theme of this letter. Children of God really shouldn't exhibit depression, but complete exhilaration when needs arise because we can make supplication to a God who knows, cares, and provides. It's interesting that Paul and the Philippians experienced true fellowship when they were miles apart. I I just like this. Uh, This This fellowship was in the gospel, according to verse 5. Paul saw people as either advancing the gospel or in desperate need of the gospel, as we should do. We should see the world in the context of the gospel. True fellowship advances the cause of Christ and the spiritual growth of believers. The word translated in the gospel, this word in, is really into The Greek word is E-I-S, is the way it's translated. Their fellowship advanced the message of redemption centered in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. There is no real fellowship out of the gospel. Yes, outside of the gospel. Yes, there there is a surface-level friendship, to be sure, but there's no deep fellowship. We Christians experience more fellowship as we spread the gospel than we do at events intended to prompt fellowship. Gospel living, gospel conversation fosters healthy fellowship. We sometimes think, oh, if we schedule a meal together or we schedule a a big group setting in the fellowship room of the church or whatever we call it, and, 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 and sometimes those are great fellowship opportunities around the gospel. But if they don't include the gospel, if they're not centered in the gospel, then really... We aren't experiencing real fellowship. There is real beauty to gospel-centric fellowship. There's a closeness in the gospel, as you well know, that we don't experience elsewhere. Well, there's there's more we could say. Uh, verse 6, Paul placed confidence in God. He had this settled persuasion of his mind, the word means literally. It was a, it was a it was a work of a, a a decision in the past, the continuing result of a decision in the past. 
Paul knew what God has, had done and was doing in his life. Down in verse 7, just to hit the highlights, Paul had the, the Philippians in his heart. They were in his thoughts. Paul talks a lot about a holy mind and right thinking in this letter. This verb to think or feel means more than a mental exercise. It conveys a, a sympathetic interest and concern. Paul was more than an intellectual. He had a deep-seated preoccupation with the Philippians in his heart and mind. He loved this church warmly. In verse 8, we see that he longed for them. He says, for God is my witness. Paul, Paul often used this term. Paul knew that God was aware of his inner feelings. Paul always told the truth, but he cites God as his witness for emphasis here. Paul's living life quorum Deo before the face of God. And you know, that's not just a negative thing. Oh, you better watch out because God's watching. No, no, no. You better, you better have joy because God is with you. Just think about that. Paul lived that way. He wrote that way. I long has the idea of an intense desire. The prepositional prefix intensifies this, and in this word intensifies this strong term of desire. It was used of the athlete who strained at the finish line to finish first. You've seen how runners lean at the finish line with this burst of speed at the end to win the race. This longing has that idea. And the object of this emotion, in this case, in Paul's writing, was the church at Philippi. He didn't, he can honestly say, and he said it several times, that, that he didn't seek what was theirs, he sought them. Boy, there's some ministries and pastors today who, who seek what people have rather than the people. Paul loved the church at Philippi. He called them his beloved, whom I long to see, my joy and crown in chapter four of this book, this letter to the Philippians. He talks about the affection of Jesus Christ. That word is really cool. It's, it's the, the viscera, the internal organs of the body, the heart, liver, spleen, intestines. It, it meant the, the seed of emotions, this, this affection that Paul's talking about. It stresses feelings of love, compassion, tenderness. Christ was actually, Jesus Christ was actually desiring the Philippians through Paul. The idea of affection here is, is kind of the pit of my stomach or with everything in me. He's referencing the source of, it, of his own affections for them, Jesus Christ. In verse 9, he talks about abounding love. The word picture here is a, a river overflowing its banks. Isn't that beautiful? Still more and more. True love includes knowledge and discernment. Knowledge here is epignosis. We've talked about that word before. Prefix epi gives it in, uh, uh, significance, emphasis. Much knowledge. True biblical love is expressed in knowledge. And it must be included in discernment. It must discriminate between good and evil. In verse 10, discerning approval and blameless deportment. These things are actually the things that, the, the, that, that differ 
The difference isn't between good and evil because God has already decreed that distinction. Rather, it's between the primary and the secondary, between the eternal and temporal values. Moral absolutes here are based on God's holy standards, but we must critically examine cultural situations. Sometimes that can feel difficult. The present tense here in verse 10 indicates that we must constantly reassess our opinions and lifestyle. And then finally, in verse 11, this notion of righteous character and the glory of God, believing sinners have a justified position before a holy God. But we have a personal responsibility to put that new standing into practice, don't we? Paul prayed here that the Philippians might be permanently filled with the fruit of righteousness. The glory of God magnifies who he is, and the praise of God rejoices over what he's done. You can't have one without the other. His attributes and actions can never be separated. I hope this little overview of these first 11 verses of Philippians are beautiful to you. I have moved rather quickly, perhaps a little more quickly than I'm comfortable moving. And uh, yet I hope that you see the beauty of this section. Next time we get to talk about another beautiful section of this book in of Philippians, this Paul's epistle to the church at Philippi. I hope you'll like, share, review, and subscribe to Relentless Truth. It is your word of mouth that has expanded this audience beyond my original expectations. I hope you'll continue to do that. This is a way to disseminate the the truth of God's word. Perhaps my overview might give someone a, 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 a renewed appetite for studying God's word. I didn't go as slowly as I wanted. And I didn't spend as much time on each individual word in its context, but I hope you have a taste now of this letter that Paul is writing to the church of Corinth. We're going to just experience joy as we move through this study over the next few weeks. I look forward to being with you again next time. Thanks for listening to Relentless Truth with John Warren. Please consider sharing this podcast and subscribe to receive future episodes. Connect with John regarding your comments, questions, and show ideas through johnwarrenmedia.com or at John Warren Media on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. That's all for this episode. Join us next week for another edition of Relentless Truth with John Warren. Thank you.